Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. It is Saturday, May 15th, the Ides of May. Isn't mm-hmm. that the historical reference? No. Yeah, close. Something like that. Uh, it was actually March. I think. Oh, yeah. you're, you're right. So Hopefully we, no one gets stabbed today, though. Nobody's going to get stabbed. I can guarantee that. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, three or four hot topics in the legal news. Um, i got a question for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Supreme Court decision uh, a while back said a murder defendant who appealed in time, according to what the court told him, they said you've got a certain number of days to appeal, and he did. He actually beat the deadline by one. In fact, it turned out he had no right to appeal. Now, why is that? And the spoiler alert is the answer is jurisdiction, which sounds boring, but it's not boring for the guy who's sitting in prison now for, I think, 15 years. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about the newest California value, Connor. It's okay to use a gun if, Great. You're, if you're committing a crime. Now, Double we're, great. We're not saying that it's okay to commit the crime. Wait, I mean, hold that's, on. I that's am. naughty, and you can end up in prison. But the old days of adding some time behind bars just because you used a gun, that's about to go away in the Golden State. We're also going to talk about judge shopping. There's a push to have all First Amendment political lawsuits heard in just one court in the nation, Washington, D.C. Democrats would really like to see that happen. We're going to talk about judge shopping. And finally, we're going to talk about when a donation is not just a donation, it's an illegal bribe, which may be redundant. Uh, We'll figure that out as well. So lots to talk about here on Too Many Lawyers. By the way, one thing before we get into our hot topics, uh, uh, I just wanted to chat a little bit about Elon Musk because I know you are a huge fan of Elon Musk. Oh, Uh, yes, huge fan. uh, He was uh, the host for Saturday Night Live a week or so ago, exactly a week ago. And he made a little bit of news by, by coming out and saying that, you know, he was the first SNL host in history who has Asperger's. Ha ha. But in fact, it then came out a little later in the week. He's not because Dan Aykroyd apparently has been diagnosed with Asperger's. So the thing is, I, I think I told you the story, Connor, about running into Dan Aykroyd in federal court a, yes. a few years mm-hmm. ago. So just for the few people who don't remember the story, which I told a while back on the podcast, we were trying a case in federal court here in Los Angeles, and we were in the cafeteria during lunch one day. And what do my wondering eyes see across the cafeteria? About 30 feet away, it's Dan Aykroyd. Spitting distance. Behind, well, of course, I wouldn't think of doing that. That would be a crime in a federal courthouse. Be it's a, a metaphor, I'm sure, but yes. Okay. Oh, okay, so yeah. I shouldn't have taken that literally. Uh, so yeah. he was wearing some Joe Biden glasses. He was he was wearing aviator, Arabian oh, okay, aviators, okay, okay. Uh, not reading glasses. No, right. I don't think Joe's patented those yet. Not yet. Uh, he'll probably have a deal with the you know, with the eyeglasses. Lens crafters people. Soon. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, anyway, uh, there Dan Aykroyd is sitting with his lawyer, and I say to my client and our and our witness, excitedly, just a little bit too much of a sotto voce times three. I mention his name. I say, "That's Dan. That's Dan Aykroyd." He heard me mention his name. Oh, no. He gives me the death glare. Oh yeah, okay? of course. 
And I've, I wanted to just drop into a hole. Of course. Because he's my all-time favorite SNL cast member. Really? of wow. Since 1975 until now. He's a, he's a classic. There have been some I mean, wonderful people yeah. from Eddie Murphy, Chevy Chase, all the rest. Uh, Kirsten Wig. He's my favorite. And so I felt really bad that he hates me. I mean, he didn't know me, but he knew. He, don't worry. He knows he's what forgotten I, you. Don't worry. Uh, it's very possible. Yeah. So I went up to the coffee lady there in the federal courthouse a little later, and I said, oh, I saw I saw Dan Aykroyd. Did, did, you, uh, did you see him? Because I think uh, he had gone in for coffee. She said, yes. Uh, he's so nice. And also his wife is nice as well. Donna Dixon, star of Bosom Buddies in the 1980s with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari. I'm sure you remember that. Oh, show yeah. Big of. fan. Anyway, so it was pretty exciting to see my Saturday Night Live hero, Dan Aykroyd, who hates me, who acknowledges that he has a little bit of an Asperger's thing going on. So it proves Elon Musk uh, was a liar. Uh, Harsh. Let's let's get to our first uh, big story, and that is this question of um, what if a court gives a murder defendant 17 days to appeal? But actually, the rule was he only had 14 days to appeal. So he and his lawyer decide, well, we're prudent. You know, we we may have committed murder, but we're going to be prudent complying with deadlines. So we're going to file our appeal after 16 days. That's what they do. They Not 17. Real ahead good. of time. Yeah. Now, yeah. for the non, good. non-litigators out there, uh, you you may not know this. Everybody files on the last day. Uh, filing a day a day ahead of time is pretty darn good. Good job, guys. We're proud of you. You know, I found after a few decades of litigating that it adds a lot to your peace of mind if you filed the day before. And if you pay deadline. your taxes a month early. But guess who does that? Nobody. Yeah, but if you don't pay your taxes, the IRS slaps your hand and, you, and charges you a little bit extra. If you don't file your document on... It's true. Well, this guy we're talking about, yeah. he's been rotting in prison for 15 years yep. because one court decided that he blew the deadline. So, well, he may have ended up rotting in court anyway, but this right. was uh, his final chance at an appeal. So here's the inside baseball angle that we wanted to chat about. It has to do with the magic word jurisdiction. So what is jurisdiction? Uh, It is the power of a court to hear cases. So to give you some examples, federal court only has a right to hear certain cases, like bankruptcy cases. That's what the statutes say. Bankruptcy goes to federal court. Uh, Violations of the federal constitution or various federal laws. But if you have a purely state law issue, like you, Connor, you go to Ralph's, you're shopping, you slip on a banana peel, you sue Ralph's for negligence, you may not sue in federal court because it's a state law issue. There's no federal court law on banana peel slippage. So you may not go to federal court. They don't have any power or jurisdiction to hear your case. So that's the rule. Now, you can explain to uh, Yeah, I'll give folks, you a little background. Yeah, what happened on to this, this man, case. Mr. Bowles? Yeah, so there's a man named Keith Bowles, uh, and the case has become famous or rather infamous, though not as famous as, or infamous as it should be, uh, as a as a, a the perfect example of how the system just chews people up and spits them out without regard to sort of common sense and it, it it's all about blind adherence uh, to the rules. This case has become uh, a central part of you know, legal Twitter and uh, sort of the zeitgeist again now, years and years later, largely because it was covered on a very uh, a, a very good podcast called 
five to four recently, a couple of recent weeks, basically this month. Go check out their episode uh, on this case. It's very, very good and gets into a lot of details. Uh, but and if the five to four hosts happen to mention too many lawyers, the podcast that talked about their story, well, we could live with that, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd be okay with uh, with with that if if you guys uh, and gal would like to to mention us as well. Of course, I know. But this is this is a a, a, a case of a guy who was in a group of people who uh, beat up somebody and the un uh, the un it was a retaliatory beat up right uh, somebody in their group has a cousin who gets beat up they go looking for the guy who hurt the cousin they find one of them they beat him up and the uncontested facts are that our guy kicked the guy while he was on the ground in the abdomen then walked away and got back in the car but there's a concept in the law, which we've discussed on the pod before, called felony murder. What he did was a felony in that he assaulted the guy, and that counts as a felony. And at the end of the whole shebang, at the end of everything, the guy dies. The guy dies. And that is what's called felony murder. There's a statute that says if, you, uh, if somebody dies during the commission of a felony, you can be charged with murder. Now, Mr. Keith Bowles ends up being the most harshly punished of all of the people involved in the this fight, this beating up of this guy. I believe he had the public defender from my cousin Vinny yeah, as his counsel. Something like that. Well, it, it could be for any number of reasons that we don't have the specifics on. People take plea deals and they rat on each other. And if you are the one who holds out, for example, then you are likely to get the most harsh sentence. Bowles ends up with life in prison. Life in prison for felony murder, not regular murder, but this enhanced, bizarre felony murder, where if you commit a felony that would not ordinarily have uh, the punishments that come with murder, uh, you get escalated up. It'll be related to our gun enhancements that we'll talk about later in the pod. It's the same sort of thing. But in this case, that's what happens. He exhausts several avenues of appeal, and then he eventually files what is known sometimes as the writ of last resort. It's called the writ of habeas corpus, which is Latin for produce the body, meaning something went so wrong in the process of this criminal prosecution that you need to produce me out of prison. You need to let me out. This is bad. This is wrong. It's unjust. He so they has, say no. So and they the, say no. And so he has 14 days to appeal the denial of his writ of habeas right. he corpus. He has to file a notice. Not the actual document. It's not like he has to craft it right. late into the just night. a piece of paper it's saying, just, I hereby appeal. Right. I he, decide to appeal. Because that, you know, gives people notice. You don't want the court to be blindsided by all oh, these appeals. They're coming out of nowhere. We didn't have notice that he was going to appeal. So you have to file something. So the rule says you says, must file your appeal within 14 days. And what does the trial court the, tell him instead? Court, yeah, the court says, oh, you got 17 days. And they write in an order from the court, 17 days. And somebody is typing this up. And they write 17 days and they mail it out to him. And the, the, the Bulls uh, or his counsel get it and they see it and they say, OK, 17 days. Well, let's file ahead of time. One on day early. Day 16. 16. Right. So they do file on day 16. When they get into court, the court says, oh, my gosh, we're so sorry. We're denying your appeal uh, because you only had 14 days. I know my order said said uh, 17. Oh, oh, yeah. We acknowledge it. That's an established and, and fact. And Bulls and his lawyer say, excuse me. Right. What? And so they take it up to the United States Supreme Court. Right. And they, this court didn't have to take this. They don't yeah. take uh, every case by any means, like 1%. And Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion, a 5-4, very slender majority. Mm -hmm. And what did the 5-4 majority decision say? So Clarence Thomas was uh, brief uh, in his uh, decision. He basically said, look, this federal court has a right 
uh, to set some deadlines, and it ha- has no right to change the law and make up its own deadlines in other scenarios. And jurisdiction is exactly. a key factor because right. Clarence Thomas says jurisdiction means power. The only power a federal court has to hear things are bankruptcy cases and federal law cases, right. and also cases where you complied with federal rules, right. namely deadlines for filing. Yeah, there's appeals. a difference. They're saying there's a difference between local court rules, where courts say I'm going to decide that you have X amount of time to do whatever, um, versus uh, uh, something that's written by uh, Congress. Congress is the body that determines the jurisdiction of federal courts. Congress is the ones uh, are the ones who write the laws that say federal courts can hear laws uh, on federal issues. Here's a federal law that and and the courts are the uh, federal courts are the, are the correct place to go if you need recourse underneath this federal law. So it's really up to the the Congress to make those sorts of decisions. And in this case, Congress wrote the law that says if uh, there's a uh, if you want to appeal uh, an, a, a decision of this type, you only have 14 days to do it. So it was not up to the the trial court in this case to say you have 17 days. They can't give him three extra days. And because they don't have the right to give him the three extra days because it's a, quote, jurisdictional, close quote, issue, Clarence Thomas says, sorry. So the minority, uh, Justice Souter and, and three other liberals on the court write an opinion Scathing. in dissent. They, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. The court itself told this guy, right. you've got 17 days, and now the court is saying, oh, no, the court was wrong. Yeah. Don't jurisdiction, jurisdiction. This guy was ripped off, but they were in the minority and yeah. the Clarence Thomas opinion stood. I mean, how can how can we square this? Right. I, I feel the same way that I would say the five, four hosts certainly feel. And I would say the random person on the street probably feels that this is uh, and the and the minority and the uh, on the Supreme Court and the people who are arguing for bulls at the Supreme Court. They said there is an exception to these, the rules that say this is jurisdictional. There's, there's a, a, an unusual circumstances uh, exception. Unique circumstances. Un- thank right. you. Unique circumstances. And Clarence Thomas explicitly in his opinion said, oh, yeah, that whole unique circumstances thing, we're overruling it to the extent that it could ever apply to anything like this, basically. We disapprove of that line of thinking. If you, if you try to use those previous cases that said there's a unique circumstances exception, if you try to use those to apply to situations where the, the issue is jurisdictional law, uh, like what is within the ambit of this court, uh, those are explicitly disapproved and can't be used in the future. I mean, this is basically uh, a, a complete this, this uh, Supreme Court decision was a complete rejection of the idea that these types of rules are there for any reason other than to cut off defendants rights. Often deadlines in federal court, especially in criminal actions where you only have one party who can actually be personally impacted, the defendant, they're, the the deadlines are there to protect the defendant. For example, a statute of limitations. If you if you uh, are accused of, uh, you know, beating somebody up and thus assault, uh, there's a statute of limitations, a deadline by which the, the state has to bring your prosecution, your criminal prosecution within a certain number of years. And if they don't do that, then they've blown it. They've missed their chance because witnesses die and move away and forget things and evidence is destroyed or spoiled or, or fades and blows away. And suddenly you're going to have to defend yourself on, on a criminal matter in a spot where you can't find your witnesses or your evidence. And that's really bad and dangerous. So we have deadlines to protect defendants. In this case, the Supreme Court says, Forget all that. The defendants aren't 
the ones you know whose rights we care about protecting here. We care about things like vague concepts of efficiency of the court. Well, you can't be having people file notices, you know, three days or two days in this case after the period required to give the court notice that a future appeal document would be coming at yeah. some point, and thus I would need a hearing. That's so inefficient. Kind of an unpopular decision. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to talk about whether this ruling was kind of analogous to the zero tolerance rule, for example, where the high mm. school valedictorian with a perfect record, uh, no crimes, etc., uh, helped his grandmother move and one uh, Monday morning shows up at school with his pickup truck and one of her butter knives was in the back of the pickup truck. Boom. No more valedictorian, no more scholarship, no more graduation because of zero tolerance. So we're going to talk about that when we return. But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe our podcast. Yeah. So check us out on whatever podcast platform you use. That might be Stitcher or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict or, or whatever platform, because we're available on lots of platforms. But on each of those platforms, uh, you can leave us reviews, like a, give us stars or numbers out of five or whatever the platform uses. And, and you can also leave us a text review where you let us know what parts of the show you're liking the most and what we should do more of. Um, and if you have any negative comments, label them with respect to Royal and how he's bad at this. So, <laughs> or, or just keep them or, or just keep them to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oak. And I'm Connor Oaks. Talking about the Bowles case out of the United States Supreme Court some years ago. Rather unpopular decision where uh, a murder defendant was told by the court, you have 17 days to appeal. And uh, so he filed it after 16 days. But then the Supreme Court said, you know, the court was wrong. It's really 14 days. And so too bad for you. I'm wondering if people who support this might try to make an analogy to the zero tolerance deal. And I mentioned the example, you know, the kid in high school who loses his scholarship and everything because there was a butter knife in the back of his truck and the school said, well, it's zero tolerance. You either have a knife or you don't and you did. And so so you're out. I, I, I guess that doesn't really resonate because at least regarding zero tolerance, although I think it's often ridiculously applied, at least there's the argument that, well, a ridiculously strict rule might deter some bad conduct. But here, with respect to this murder defendant, uh, I mean, he followed the school's directive. I don't think there was any bad conduct. I to think be it's deterred. actually very analogous because I think that the Supreme Court and also just our society at large treats kids in school the same way that they treat federal prisoners. It's ve- it's very analogous. Effectively, they have to their do the right- pledge of allegiance in prison. <laughs> yeah, their rights don't really matter. What matters is maintaining order and efficiency. And their thought is, well, you know what? Just sit on your hands until you're out of school. And then once you're an adult, then you'll have rights. And then your rights will really matter fully. And you'll be a fully important citizen uh, of the country. Because, you know, kids are just not that important. Their thoughts are not that important. Their free speech is not that important. Another very famous decision about the Alaska high schooler, who you probably have seen a picture of at some point, uh, if you're a denizen of the internet, who uh, was suspended from his school by uh, because he held up a poster behind the Olympic torch as the as the runner ran by. He held up a poster that said with some friends of his that said bong hits for and with the number four Jesus bong hits for Jesus. And the Supreme Court heard this case and they said, uh, you know what? This kid's rights are not very important because it, it, it's what what really matters is maintaining order in schools. You can't have people, uh, you know, advocating for drug use in schools so you can suspend people if they do it. And therefore, this kid's First Amendment rights are pretty much irrelevant compared to this concept. And this was a very bad, dangerous case because it explicitly uh, codified the idea of 
uh, viewpoint discrimination in First Amendment law. They said schools can discriminate on the on the subject of the viewpoint of the person who's speaking, advocating for drugs as opposed to being against drug use. And we're saying those that persons who, who has a different viewpoint, their perspective is not important and it's not valuable and not worth protecting. And instead, we value efficiency and rule following. And it's the same thing it, that prisoners go through, like this guy Bowles and everyone in the uh, legal justice, criminal justice or criminal legal system in America. The concept is not how do we vindicate these people's rights? The overriding concept is how do we move through people through this process as fast as possible? How do we get them to take plea deals? How do we get them to take more time in prison? How do we get them to flip on each other in order to end this process and spend less money prosecuting them so that we can put him in prison and spend more time, more money uh, keeping him in prison, of course. It's horribly inefficient in reality, but it's not inefficient to the people who are running this system. The people who are running the system don't want this trial to go on for longer. They don't want more appeals. They just want it to be done and move on. And so be- I have a question for you. Yeah. What does bong hits for Jesus mean? Excellent take, point. Take all the time you want. Absolutely. On. No one knows what bong hits for Man, Jesus means. I was afraid but of that. the <sighs> Supreme Court in that case importantly, spent absolutely no time analyzing whether this was a religious issue as a free speech concept. They explicitly and only analyzed it, the majority opinion, from the perspective of, is this advocating for drugs? Well, how about the fact that there are some religions that do utilize marijuana in parts, in parts of their religious uh, experience? I, I buzzed in there. I good job. Really good. And, and others. Question. And what about other religions that use drugs like peyote in their religious rituals? And what about the, And what about the fact that peace and love is associated with the sort of hippie drug movement and the idea that religious people are fiercely prohibitionist as to marijuana use, hence drug uh, bong hits, and the idea that this is parody, perhaps, of religious people. So it could be a pro-religion message or an anti-religion message, and the Supreme Court just throws up its hands and says, oh, it's just kids who love smoking the weed. I think it's their fault for not explaining themselves. It's like Don McLean in American Pie. What the hell do those lyrics mean? Yeah, good point. Well, even if they'd explain themselves, they still get unscrewed because all that matters is viewpoint discrimination was enshrined into a First Amendment law by this terrible decision in the same way that this completely arbitrary rule following nonsense is enshrined into our legal system by the Bowles case. And every criminal legal defendant after the Bowles case, which for the last, you know, as you said, 15 years has to contend with the fact that the court can just throw its hands up, pretend to have its its hands tied, really, and say, well, I just don't care about you missing this deadline and suffering horrific consequences from it because it's a jurisdictional issue. It establishes that as the absolute foundation that nothing can can penetrate nothing can go past the concept of jurisdiction and therefore the conservatives on the court can just say well we just can't vindicate the rights of these defendants i'm very sorry uh but we, you, you just should follow the rules it reflects that their whole worldview as uh is based on the concept of if you break the rules we will put you down one way or another. If you don't comply with the police, you deserve to get beat up or or arrested. If you don't comply with court rules, you deserve to stay and rot in jail without appeal. I mean, it's a horrifying, tragic situation. We've proven, Connor, that uh, even though nothing fascinating came out of the Supreme Court this week, doggone it, a 15-year-old Supreme Court decision is good to talk about. Let's get Keith Bowles out of prison. How's that? Let's go to our second topic. Uh, The newest California value. It's okay to use a gun if you're committing a crime. Yeah. So here's the plan by the California legislature. They want to essentially decriminalize the use of a gun in a crime in order to minimize the effect of this law on people of color. To be entirely clear, the crime is still 
against the law. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But let me get that's this straight. Let me get this straight. Uh, yeah. Guns are bad. Guns are bad. Sure. Uh, we should yes. restrict the right of people to own them. Yes. Uh, if we have to let them have guns, there must be strict limits like background checks and red right. flag laws and mandatory gun insurance and mass right. shootings are a horrible tragedy killing many people a year. But on the other hand, there's gun use in crimes generally. Every year, 14,000 people are killed using guns in crimes like murder, assault with a deadly weapon, manslaughter. 28,000 are injured in shootings by criminals in addition to the fatalities. So that's 42,000 deaths or injuries involving guns in crime because of the devastating effect on the use of uh, guns uh, on crime victims. We've got laws that increase your sentence. And in California, generally, if you use a gun during your crime, it's going to bump up your sentence by about 10 years, robbery or assault. Whoa. But California wants to change those laws. The legislature wants to essentially decriminalize the use of a gun if you use it during the commission of a crime. Why? Because we're told, as I say, the penalties for gun use disproportionately impact people of color. Now, we are told, whereas blacks are 13% of the population, Blacks are 53% of the people who go to prison for robbery and assault. And if you go to prison for robbery or assault, you get another 10 years or so added to your sentence if you used a gun. So legislature doesn't want to do that. Um, my question is, wouldn't it be better to do whatever we can to reduce whatever racism there is that infects police and prosecutors and the courts and the laws, but leave in place penalty enhancements for the use of guns, given the horrendous human tragedies inflicted by guns in connection with crimes? Well, the question uh, begs that it's possible to reduce the racism inherent in cops and and prosecutors. If anybody can do so it. Joe Biden can do it. So that's step one is maybe it's impossible to do that. And secondly, even if it's not impossible to do that, we can look at the implications of a policy that's in place right now and say, OK, the implications of the policy are that you have racist outcomes. So why don't we change those the policy that's in place uh, and, and not try to change the hearts and minds of cops and prosecutors whose hearts and minds are very hard to change uh, and take decades and decades and decades when we could snap our fingers and change the outcomes now so that they the people who are living in our society aren't suffering from racist and unequal outcomes. Imagine a hypothetical um, gun enhancement uh, system, right, where uh, Elon Musk builds a drone that has a rocket launcher on it, and it has a... Uh, a if anybody can do it, he can do it. Yeah, exactly. And it has a, uh, a, a special AI a computer and a camera on it, and the drone uh, follows people around, and when it sees uh, crime being committed that involves a, a gun, uh, it shoots the rocket launcher and explodes the person uh, who has the gun, right? And say there's a 100% positivity rate... And they never get a false positive and never blow up anybody who isn't carrying a gun and committing a crime at the exact same hard time. Hard to believe. It is hard to believe, right? Oh, yeah. And if they never get a false positive and never accidentally hit somebody who didn't, uh, uh, who wasn't committing a crime involving a, a, a gun, you could look at the results of that. And if you say, oh, my gosh, this is blowing up twice as many black people with a rocket launcher as white people, even though... Uh, black people are only 13% of the population, and statistically, they black people don't commit a higher percentage of crimes of this type than white people. So there's something going on in our system in terms of where we're deploying the drones, how often the drones are in the air, what kind of crimes the drone recognizes as 
as the kind of crime that deserves, you know, blowing up or what kind of guns people are carrying that get recognized by the drone. All of these are analogies for policing and the way that we police people and track them down, how often black people are stopped and frisked and and uh, prosecuted for crimes, how often they own guns and then use them in crimes and then are prosecuted for it, as opposed to white people who also own guns, use them in crimes, but aren't prosecuted and aren't and prosecutors don't ask for gun enhancements. Say you look at all this and you go, wow, we could just stop the drones. We could ground the drones, still prosecute people for crime. Or take the rocket launcher off the drone and just have them record the crime and then people get arrested and then they go to trial and then they get sentenced for the crime that they did. But we don't do this whole blow you up with a rocket thing just because you were using using a gun. Obviously, that's the right outcome. Obviously, even though we could we could look at this and change the whole subject and say, well, what if we try to make cops not racist? Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. We can snap our fingers and ground the drones. That's all we got to do right now. It fixes it right now. And so the idea that we would instead talk about, well, how about we do this incredibly hard thing that has failed for 200 years of changing people's hearts and minds and making them less racist people and instead just say, well, we can't fix the laws in place that, that create okay, racist outcomes. I hear you. And I think we should send you to Sacramento to testify. I think the legislature would love to hear Absolutely. your hypothetical. Do you worry at all about the fact that uh, if we get rid of the gun enhancements, a bunch of people who don't serve the extra 10 years are going to be back on the street and committing more crime, crimes with new and better guns? Does no. that concern you at all? It doesn't because we so over incredibly over-police people currently that our society, like the recidivism rate for crimes is high, but it's not it's not a, a it doesn't have to be that way anything that we we do to improve the criminal legal system will improve our recidivism rate anything we do to improve our society and lower the amount of these crimes will lower the amount of these crimes like there are lots of avenues to improve things that we can do literally in any moment if we do it and this that gun enhancements are not that and have not been that gun enhancements are just a way to stack up a massive number uh, of years in prison in front of uh, criminal uh, defendants in order to force them to take plea deals. That is the outcome Folks. that has come for years and years and years from gun enhancements. We realized all they are is a tool for prosecutors to force people to take plea bargains. Folks. And so when you take when you take that tool away, there will be fewer people pleading guilty to crimes and they will be serving fewer years. But it will also be a lot of innocent people back on the street, too. So I'm not really worried about people, you know, not suffering from gun enhancements and not paying their, you know, their their whole uh, prison terms because people are already serving 10 times the amount of prison time that they need to serve to be rehabbed and improved and, you know, help themselves anyway. Uh, and all we got to do is support them when they leave prison anyway. Well, for the record, I disagree. I, I am worried about sure. those people, what they might do in those 10 years. But we can agree to disagree. The important thing is people should set their DVRs for when you testify in front of C-SPAN. California. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it's going to be a ratings buster. When we come back, we're going to talk about judge shopping. It's even more fascinating than you might think. <laughs> Stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So judge shopping. I buy all my judges at Hot Topic. (laughs) There's a push to have all First Amendment political cases like Citizens United and stuff heard in just one court, Washington, D.C. So let me give you a little background. In the law, there is something called judge shopping. Usually when you file a lawsuit, you have very little control over who your judge is. When you file a federal court lawsuit, it's literally a random choice thing. They have a wheel. They spin a wheel and they pick your judge. And it's interesting, years ago, the Rodney King federal case uh, was assigned randomly to a, a judge 
And then the cops lost. Rodney King won. And then Rodney King filed his uh, civil rights uh, lawsuit for, for civil damages. By total random chance, the exact same judge got the Rodney King civil case. So Whoa. can you imagine? I mean, th- this yeah. guy pr- knew everything uh, anybody could know about Rodney King. That's true. So that's what happens in federal court. In some state courts, like California, you get a free strike, they call it. Uh, you got You can say, oh, I got Judge Smith. I, I don't like Judge Smith. I'm striking. You don't have you, to explain it at all. Exactly. You don't have to prove that he hated you or your client or anything like that. But watch out, because if you strike a judge, your opponent also gets to strike a judge and then the third judge you get might be locked in from your perspective as the first one plus the court system yeah some people suspect they kind of keep a a list of lawyers who are naughty and nice who who pick these uh, judges and perhaps oh nobody's got time for that they'll assign judges perhaps that you really wouldn't want to see maybe so so, now sometimes you can pick the court where you sue so that might help now a conspiracy theory podcast by the way but i'm in for i'm in okay now if you if you can pick the court where you could sue it might help for example if uh, most of the judges in Louisiana or Texas are kind of generally Republican appointees, let's say, uh, whereas the majority of judges in California or New York might be Democrat appointees. If you have a right to sue in various courts, like the parties or the issues have connections with lots of different areas of the country or court systems, in that way, you can kind of pick your judge. There's a famous case that everybody learns in law school called the International Shoe that's about personal jurisdiction to tie it to jurisdiction. This is a concept of does the court have jurisdiction over the individual person? Can you drag me into court in this specific place? In that case, there was somebody who sued a company and they sued them in the the part of Texas where the absolute highest possible verdicts statistically come out of. The jury pool, for whatever reason there, has incredibly high verdicts, the highest in the entire country. So they go, the lawyers go to that uh, that tiny little county and they file a lawsuit in that tiny little jurisdiction and they try to get the highest possible verdict. And the defendant says, whoa, you got to drag me all the way to Texas. I'm like a New York-based company. What? I don't do anything in Texas. And they go, sorry, you got personal jurisdiction Connor, for whatever reason. You realize this, is, this show is just like somebody going to law school. Basically. Yeah. yeah. So instead of paying $200,000 in tuition and it ruining your life, you can just <laughs> listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. All right. So here we are. Um, uh, we're talking about picking the court where you can sue. Yeah, but uh, specifically for federal issues, that is First Amendment issues. Correct. It, whereas I mean, we're not saying you can't, sh- sh- you know, venue shop, forum shop for your your personal injury lawsuit to try to get the biggest verdict. You can still do that. This is just about First Amendment free speech type issues, usually. Right. And, and speaking of, of picking, for example, the counties it, within California, some counties are known as being more conservative. Yeah. If you go to San Diego, if you go to the Inland Empire, mm-hmm. you're not likely to get a runaway jury. If you go to Oakland or San Francisco, it is known as the bank. You are likely to get a blockbuster verdict for the same kind of injury. So in that way, people uh, are able to select. So the Democrats in Washington have an idea in Congress. They maybe can't do court packing. That looks a little grim now, thanks to uh, Joe Manchin, the heroic Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Instead, they want to do court picking. And here's how it works. Currently, if you want to file a suit saying Congress has passed an unconstitutional law that denies free speech, you may sue wherever the speech right has been violated in any state. But Democrats want all such suits to be heard by one court, and that's the District of Columbia Federal Court. And in that court, for example, uh, it's a six to four majority of Democrat appointees uh, to the appeals court, a 10, uh, the trial court, that is, a 10-4 uh, uh, advantage of Democrat appointees for the other court. And this is this is related to another topic that we've discussed a lot where, previously, which is the idea of nationwide uh, uh, 
restraining orders, basically. National injunctions. Thank you. National injunctions that federal courts can issue. You bring a, a, a case and you end up in the Sixth Circuit and whatever, and, and they issue a, a decision that will be binding on the entire country. And, and for example, the Ninth Circuit, fairly liberal, right. was home to a, well, bunch, formally, but yeah. a bunch of, well, it still has a, uh, an advantage of Democrat appointees over Republican appointees. Um, and so a lot of anti-Trump lawsuits were very successfully filed by Democrats in the Ninth Circuit district courts. And then they'd work up to the Ninth Circuit and the anti-Trump decision would almost always get affirmed. And maybe the Supreme Court would save the day for Trump. Maybe they wouldn't. But in that sense, if you if you can prove that you belong in a California federal court, for example, and nobody can say, oh, it really should have been in Louisiana. Once you have a right to go there, it's not if, hard. That, if yeah. that judge issues an injunction, against a federal agency, it applies to the entire nation. Right. And, and as you say, that, that's very controversial. And so that is the idea behind this court reform effort to say, let's change the jurisdiction of courts, federal courts, on this topic, this subject matter area, and put it in one place because and sub- it's going to apply a federal injunction across the whole country, so you shouldn't be able to forum shop. And this subject matter is very controversial because it, when I'm talking about First Amendment uh, rights, we're specifically talking about political disputes, and it goes back to the famous Supreme Court of several years ago called Citizens United. In Citizens United, uh, the Supreme Court held the First Amendment's free speech clause prohibits the government from restricting independent expenditures for political communications by corporations and labor unions and other associations. It was a it was a group called Citizens United. They didn't like Hillary. They produced an anti-Hillary movie in 2008 when Obama won, and they would have violated a campaign finance law that banned any corporation from electioneering within a month or, or two months of an election. Uh, and Anthony Kennedy, and, and joined by four others on the Supreme Court, held that the law violated the First Amendment. And so that's the background. And I think the Democrats are, are are eager to make sure that in this hugely controversial and important topic, they want Washington, D.C. judges to handle it. And the Republicans are saying it's judge shopping and it's not really right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a contentious issue. I, 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 I understand the the arguments that, hey, we've got a system going. It's going pretty well. Why are we rocking the boat? But I also understand the uh idea behind court reform that says, look, our current system is pretty inane. It allows plaintiffs to bring lawsuits uh, kind of anywhere. And you end up with people racing uh, to court to try to, to file in different jurisdictions uh, before each other, even uh, in order to get the outcome that they want in these cases. So it, it really is a, a, a situation, I think, that is ripe for reform. And the idea that you you should. It is logical that if you have a national injunction system, that that system would be centralized. That there would be one place you could go. In the same way that the Supreme Court, uh, you know, go, answers questions for the whole country on this subject matter. When you expect to be answering questions for the whole country, because you know, on campaign finance or money in politics and other ways, or or other free speech issues. These are things that apply to everyone, everywhere. It's meaningless, really, to say that, oh, well, this is a California issue, or this is a Louisiana issue. You, it's basically, you just check a box, you show up, you say, look, there are people here, they have free speech rights, they want to be able to put money in politics or keep money out of politics, and boom, jurisdiction done, you've got it, you're going to be in that circuit. And that when it's a meaningless box-checking exercise, it kind of is indicative that there's a problem. So you mentioned 
mentioned um, uh, Rockin' the Boat, and that reminded me of a book I would love to uh, to recommend to folks at this point. It's called Rock Me on the Water. It's written by Ronald Brownstein, the Los Angeles Times longtime political reporter. And it's all about the fact that in the mid-1970s, specifically he pinpoints 1974, it was the apex of cultural achievement in America with respect to movies and TV and music. Rock Me on the Water. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Well, we've done it, Connor. We've gotten through our topics, except for one. We'll get into that next week when is a donation, a bribe. But that'll give us all something to look forward to. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time on Too Many Lawyers. Too Many Lawyers.